0: Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and director of content marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started.
1: Hi, and happy holidays. I hope everyone had a phenomenal time celebrating Thanksgiving. Today, we're going to talk about all of the regulatory developments in the month of November. Joining me is our Regulatory Compliance Councils, Robert Brosh and Nicole Upshur. I am Stephanie Lyon, Vice President of Compliance. And the way we're going to deliver the topics today is we're going to make sure we cover things affecting the entire banking industry, move on to issues affecting depository institutions, and end with our mortgage companies. It is, again, of no surprise, another month packed with COVID news, but this time it's on the labor and employment front, which we think is very important for your operations. So, Robert, tell us a little bit about what is going on with labor and employment when it comes to COVID and the pandemic response.
2: Yes, so the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, also known as
1: OSHA, They published an
2: emergency temporary standard on November 5th, requiring employers of 100 or more employees uh, to develop, implement, and enforce a mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy. Uh, Included in that ETS was an exception for those covered employers if they did require their employees to be tested regularly and also wear a face covering at work in lieu of vaccination. There were various dates for implementation of these policies, but on November 6th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit stayed enforcement of the ETS pending expedited judicial review. Uh, and then on November 12th, they permanently stayed the ETA, ETS based on irreparable harm to individual constitutional freedom, financial effects for those institutions that do have to implement that required testing, and face mask, if that's the route that they chose to go to. Um, And if that wasn't enough back and forth, the Biden administration also issued a motion to dissolve the stay, asking that the Fifth Circuit's stay be lifted immediately, while also delaying action on federal employees who were not vaccinated by the November 22nd deadline, which was an additional standard implemented for federal employees only. So it'll certainly be interesting to see what goes on, especially with the Omicron variant coming out with COVID and see how that goes on the judicial side. And I think states are also looking to take advantage of this stay. Um, I know there are a few states who are looking to implement something similar to this or something different. And I think Nicole has some information there.
0: You're correct, Robert. And as you stated, That suit that was filed against the Biden administration, 11 states joined it. Um, These states have also responded by implementing their own state efforts to ban private employers from mandating vaccinations. For instance, Tennessee passed legislation that curtails the ability of private employers implementing COVID restrictions in the workplace. The new Tennessee law prohibits private businesses from requiring or compelling proof of vaccination for employees and customers for any reason. And the Tennessee law also prohibits employers from taking adverse actions against employees who don't provide proof of vaccination. In similar fashion to Tennessee, Montana, Wyoming, and Texas have also made efforts to prohibit private employers from requiring vaccinations. For instance, Montana's governor signed a bill that prohibits discrimination based on vaccination status, including discrimination by private employers when it comes to refusing employment or banning current employees from coming to work because they haven't been vaccinated. And Wyoming's governor also signed a bill which bans public entities from enforcing vaccine mandate that requires the employer to ensure or to mandate that their employees have actually received the COVID vaccine. Now in Texas, the Texas governor issued an order in point of banning all entities um, from including private empo- employers in the vaccination mandates. Now, Texas has even went as far is to say if a private employer violates the Texan order, they can face up to $1,000 in fines. Other states have not went as strong as the states that previously mentioned. Um, States like Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Florida, Utah, and West Virginia, they've all implemented efforts to either Exempt employees or give employees the opt-out option from vaccine mandates if they meet certain criteria. Now, the remaining states have simply stayed silent on Biden administration's de- vaccine mandates when it comes to private employers. So I'm curious also, Robert, to see how this is all going to play out in court.
1: Very interesting, the court side, the state side, and the federal side. And that is not everything about COVID. While we're still in the middle of COVID, and as Robert mentioned, there is a new variant out there, the federal regulators decided it was a pretty good time to end the flexibility of some of their compliance programs that they had in the past. You may remember from April 2020. They issued a notice saying that they were not going to look at Regulation X compliance a lot. They were going to take good faith efforts to comply with early intervention loss mitigation notices because they knew that you had to deal with a lot of loss issues regarding borrowers who could not pay their mortgages due to COVID hardships. However, they feel that after 18 months, even though we're still in this pandemic, We are now or should be now prepared to deal with the full compliance of Regulation X and all of its twists and turns that it has with it where you can go wrong from early intervention, again, all the way to the foreclosure process that does have a little bit of state law as well. So what you need to do practically speaking now is understand if you had any procedures that told you you didn't have to observe the strict timing requirements of notices regarding loss mitigation, that's no longer true. You have to go back to Regulation X, and you have to make sure that you are complying with it per the letter of the reg. That's very important because now regulators will be utilizing their full supervisory and enforcement powers when it comes to doing examinations of Regulation X or any other consumer-related regulations. So that is our news on COVID and how the regulators, the laws, and, and federal and state governments are each approaching it very differently. We're going to move on to another issue that seems to be taking a lot of traction lately. It keeps getting more and more commentary from the agencies, and that is climate risk. Robert, what's going on on that front?
2: That's right, Stephanie. So it seems like there is a storm coming on the climate-related financial risk front. Acting comptroller of the currency, Sue, stated that his agency is working to develop a high-level climate risk management supervisory framework. That's a mouthful right there. Um, And those are going to be climate-related expectations for large banks. He expects the framework to be issued by the end of the year for comment from interested parties. And then the OCC also had its first climate change risk officer promoted so that way they can focus on environmental supervision throughout the upcoming year. And then if that's not enough, the OCC and and Comptroller Sue also issued five climate change questions that every bank board should ask themselves. And this doesn't just deal with large banks. This is institutions across the board for our credit unions and mortgage companies. It's even something that you should look at. But those questions focus on the credit concentrations in climate-related financial industries And also factors that institutions should take into account if they are located in areas with high risk of natural disasters. And then we also have movement on the international scale as well. So the Basel Committee issued principles on climate related financial risks, focusing on corporate governance um, that includes banks should be looking to designate a specific position with their own institution that is responsible for monitoring your climate-related financial risks. You should implement internal controls. You need to be paying attention to capital and liquidity adequacy to ensure that your financials are not overly reliant and concentrated in certain industries. And so the Basel Committee, you know, it issued these principles those principles aren't normally implemented directly as uh, regulatory requirements or prohibitions for institutions, but those principles are taken by regulators. Um, you know, the Basel Committee capital adequacy principles and also some BSA elements have been implemented into regs that institutions must follow, and so it's certainly the same along the same lines here. So, if you haven't taken a look already. Now certainly the time to do so. So that's the federal level, the state level. But I do think New York is also touching on climate change here. Nicole, what's happening over in New York?
0: You're right, Robert. I'm going to play off of what you said. The storm has reached New York. New York has implemented climate risk management expectations for their state's large banks. Uh, New York's Department of Financial Services has published several guidance letters for their regulated entities recommending they integrate the consideration of financial risk from climate change into their governance frameworks, their risk management processes, and their business strategies, and that the banks also develop their own climate-related financial disclosures. And New York has now announced the establishment of a new climate risk division at the New York State Department of Financial Services. And the appointment of the new division's um, leader for them, Dr. Yu Nina Chen. So New York Department of Financial Services is now the first U.S. banking regulator to institute a climate risk division. So it, we'll see if other states decide to follow New York's lead. But since it is such an important concern on the federal level, and New York seems to be one of the states that usually initiate things, I see other states following suit, Robert.
1: I definitely agree with you, Nicole. It seems like where New York and California start, many, many follow. Anyways, we're going to switch on over to issues affecting banks, and we're going to start with the final new rule, which is always exciting. New rules. This one actually creates completely new parts to a to 12 CFR for the OCC, the Federal Reserve, and the FDIC. So all three of them are implementing a brand new rule, and it has to do with computer security incident notification requirements. What does that all mean? Well. If your bank, and again, everything on this rule is all about definition. So if your bank service organization has a computer security incident, which again, it's defined by the rule and it is affecting or likely to affect the ability of your customers to utilize their accounts or the confidentiality of the records that are shared from your customers to your institution, you are now required to provide a notice to your primary federal regulator within 36 hours. So not a whole business day, not two business day, a little bit more complicated. They had to go with the 36-hour metric, which is even more difficult to remember, but that's what it is. The 36-hour timeframe does not start from the date of the incident. It actually gets triggered when you make an understanding, a realization that it now is something you have to worry about that it does cross that threshold and that's when that time frame starts to run so keep that in mind the notification requirement is twofold one is applicable to banking organizations and the second requirement is going to be applicable to your third party providers, but not all third-party providers. The rule is very precise in who they're talking about regarding third parties. And third parties have to notify your institution that they had a security incident so that you can make the decision or you can make the realization if this crosses the threshold of having to notify your primary federal regulator. And again, keeping in mind that time frame. So you have to either designate a person from your institution to receive this notification from your third-party service provider. And if you don't take action to designate anyone, that's okay. The rule steps in and tells the service provider who specifically to contact. In this case, if there's no designated person, they have to go with the CEO and CIO. If you don't have one of those two people, they just have to pick two comparable employees of your institution that have those types of responsibilities and levels of authority. So that's the final rule. Again, be on the lookout for new parts of the CFR being created by it. And remember that it's going to go into effect April 1st, but they're going to give you about a month to actually have a compliance deadline and get all of the processes in place. You have plenty of time now and you might be wondering, okay, this sounds eerily familiar to other responsibilities I already have regarding computer intrusion notifications. And you're right, the Bank Secrecy Act and the guidelines about computer intrusion, they already require you to notify your banking providers or your, I'm sorry, your primary regulators of these types of issues. But the regulators decided, the agency said, we feel like we don't hear about everything we want to hear about. So we're going to do a new rule so that we get exactly what we want to hear about when we want to hear about it. That's all this new rule is. It's supposed to standardize the notification requirements. And that's why, even though we are already notifying our primary regulators of similar instances, <laughs> now we just have a more standardized approach. So that is what's going on for our, from the banking area. We're going to move on to our credit unions, where we're going to talk about a couple of share facilities permissions that NCUA just recently established. Is that right, Robert?
2: That's right. Field of membership with credit unions—touchy subject for banks, for sure—and um, it looks like it it will continue to be so because it is getting the powers are being coming expanded here. Uh, so NCUA adopted a final rule amending its chartering and field of membership rules. Uh, to modernize requirements related to service facilities for multiple common bond federal credit unions. So currently for those multiple common bond FCUs, uh, they are not permitted to expand their field of membership to underserved areas or new groups um, in an area where there is a shared branch network that the uh, multiple common bond FCU participates in, unless that credit union has an ownership interest in the shared branch network. However, with this final rule, NCUA is removing that ownership interest requirement, meaning that if the credit union participates in a shared branch network, they can now expand their field of membership, um, you know, offer services and products to these customers that they weren't able to necessarily reach before um, if they do participate in that shared branch network. And just an important note, compared to the proposed rule, the final rule that NCUA published, uh, they didn't include ATMs in the definition of service facilities. What's that mean? Um, It basically means that credit unions who have ATMs in locations where their field of membership doesn't necessarily reach can't use this new allowance um, for these shared branch networks uh, as service facilities to expand their field of membership. Um, and ATM you know, doesn't rise to the same level as a physical location uh, for customers to be able to go in and access those services, those products, get loans, have deposits. And so NCUA wasn't willing to, to go that far. Big benefit for credit unions here, those multiple common bond federal credit unions who are now able to uh, participate with each other, create these shared branch networks, um, and whether or not they have an ownership interest in those networks, they can now expand their field of membership to people who need, uh, you know, those credit union services.
1: Thank you, Robert, and we're going to stay on NCOA for just a moment. They, They recently issued a federal credit union letter regarding meeting flexibility so that you can meet with your members virtually all the way through 2022. We saw this type of guidance issued in 2020 and 2021 regarding having the ability to have required meetings virtually over Zoom or other types of platforms. So we were wondering what NCUA was going to do regarding 2022, seeing how, again, the pandemic has gone nowhere yet. And they came out with this letter just in a nick of time. There's a lot of meetings that are mandatory, like your annual meeting with your members, that once a year in-person meeting with your board of directors, and other types of special meetings that you have to have in person. And so this flexibility that NCUA is offering to federal credit unions allows you to take your bylaws and simply by votes of two-thirds of your board of directors, you can modify them to introduce the flexibility to be able to have these in-person meetings over a virtual platform. There are a couple of requirements for you to be able to actually take advantage of the flexibility. So it's not as easy as a plug and play kind of guidance. You do have to take certain steps. First, you have to have guidance from NCOA that it is acceptable to do this. Now we have it. So that's great. It goes all the way through 2022. So we're all set for next year. The second thing is your state has to declare a state of emergency or major disaster. And it has to be affecting either the area in which you are headquartered or it has to be affecting all or part of a community in which your credit union is servicing or serves. So those are the first two prongs to make sure you qualify. After that, you have to make sure you have the technological capabilities to have these types of virtual meetings. Remember, when it comes to your annual meeting of the, the membership, You could have thousands of people in it. So you have to make sure you have the platform ready to facilitate voting, discussion, conversations, and those types of things during these types of meetings. And then the last prong to be able to take advantage of this, you have to provide your members with at least seven days advance notice that you're moving an in-person meeting over to the virtual platform. So keep in mind, you still have to vote for those bylaws. And one of the most important parts about the bylaws is you may have very different bylaws than the model bylaws provided to you by NCUA. Model bylaws keep changing year after year after year. So you can't just take the language that NCUA drafted for you and put it into your bylaws if they don't actually match your articles and they don't actually match the sections that you have in your bylaws. So just be a little bit careful with that. Make sure your counsel or your compliance officer is involved in reviewing your bylaws. And the last little point that I want to make here is remember that if you're going to have voting virtually over any platform, your bylaws have to allow for virtual voting. And there's a specific provision that you have to select in your bylaws to allow for such a thing. So if you haven't implemented that You also have to change that. And the best part about all of these changes to your bylaws is you don't actually have to go through NCOA. This guidance is also saying, just go ahead and have the voting done by your board of directors, plug and play it, make sure you're fitting with the requirements, and that's how you don't violate your bylaws and you're able to have meeting flexibility. So we appreciate seeing this from NCOA, especially as we are trying to keep members and staff safe. So this is very good. Um, step towards that direction. Hopefully, has seeing how the world has changed quite a little bit, we will see something more permanent in terms of this type of guidance for the future. But that you'll have to call your lobbying organizations, your trade organizations, to make sure that happens for you. Because meeting virtually is so much easier and so many more people can attend than if you force them all to cram into one little room once a year to have your uh, board of directors meeting or your annual meeting of your members. The last point here, something to be cautious of, is the only meeting that you cannot have virtually is a special meeting to vote people out, to expel or expel them from your membership. That is the one carve out that NCUA decided to put into their flexibility. So just keep that in mind. Otherwise, we're going to go ahead and switch on over to topics affecting our mortgage companies. And I think we're going to go ahead and stay with New York for this one, Nicole. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, you're right, Stephanie. New York is in the news again, and this may be of concern for our mortgage companies. New York governors signed new legislation expanding New York's Community Reinvestment Act to include non-depository mortgage lenders. Under the new legislation, the specific areas that New York's Department of Financial Services will be considering are institutions' activities that they undertake to assess the credit needs of their community, communicate their services, and the geographic distribution of their credit applications, their credit extensions, and their credit denials. So New York is now the third state behind Massachusetts and Illinois to subject mortgage bankers to CRA requirements. Different associations have strong opinions concerning the expansion of the CRA. The Mortgage Bankers Association has stated that they strongly oppose state efforts to impose the Community Reinvestment Act standards on independent mortgage bankers and companies. And they have even went to say they think that doing this is ineffective and a misguided policy choice. However, other associations like the National Community Reinvestment Coalition are all for expanding the Community Reinvestment Act to not only independent mortgage bankers and companies, but to credit unions also. So Biden's administration did rally to expand CRA, but it remains to be seen if this will ever happen on a federal level. Or if other states will follow Massachusetts, Illinois, and New York's lead and start instituting their own Credit Reinvestment Act standards on non depository institutions like independent mortgage banks and companies?
1: Sounds like a lot of dramatic moves are being made across the state, a lot of, of very harsh words being used. Very interesting. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> And thank you all for joining me to discuss important developments for banks, credit unions, mortgage companies. If you want to hear more, if you want to see more guidance, news, regulatory changes, make sure to check out your NComply, where you will find all of the topics we discussed today and more information, analysis pieces, and so much more that you can do in the software. I cannot wait to ring in the new year next month with all of you and tell you everything that happens in the month of December. So please join me and we will see you soon. That wraps
0: up this month's NCAST Regulatory Brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.